welcome to Gin and Topic. Woo! We are here for another series. Yep, another one. Just keeps happening. Just it keeps does. going. It does. And so we got loads of gins. Oh yeah, tons of gin. Tons of gin. Tons of experts. Yeah. Tons of topics. Well, and that's the thing, you see. Give us a gin. Talk to anyone. We will. Mm. We will talk to anyone about anything. So yeah, we're going to talk to a ton of people about loads of stuff over gin. And I'm going to make rude comments while we do it to stay on brand. (laughs) And you never know, we might actually learn some stuff. We might even remember stuff. (laughs) Oh, that's not going to happen anytime soon. What? Hello, hello. Here we are again with a really interesting looking gin. I just want to drink. I do. I really want to, but we'll get onto it in a minute. Okay. In Who are we minute, talking to? Right. This week we are talking to Deborah Jackson. Okay. Um, Deborah Jackson is a professor and Takeda chair, and I'll explain why that is in a minute, of global child health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Okay. Okay, so the Takeda Chair, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but it's how I'm pronouncing it. Um, Takeda or Takeda or whatever is a pharmaceutical company. Sure, okay. And so they are funding a position at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine to support research in in helping to reduce child deaths in low and middle income countries. Okay, so this is going to be a really deep one where we have to acknowledge that we're talking about everything from a point of view with immense privilege. Uh, yeah. Yeah, because you can already tell. Deborah's research is on global maternal child health mm-hmm. and the how to improve programs in low and middle income countries. So we are looking at global child health. Mm-hmm. How does child health differ around the world and how has COVID impacted on it? And we're drinking gin from a different country. Ooh! Because we're going global. We are going to South Africa. Nice. And we are drinking, and I don't know how to pronounce this, Inverosh, I would say. My lecturer is South African, so I feel like I should now send him a picture of the bottle and be like, It's a lovely (laughs) bottle. I really like the shape of the bottle. It's It's quite square. And it's an interesting coloured gin because it looks... Almost whiskey-like. Yeah, so it's an amber gin and I can't even read the back with my glasses Shall on. Shall I? I'm going to pass okay. it to you. An independent distillery on the southern shores of Africa where we stand in respect, awe and wonder at the time gone before. The extraordinary aromas, funbus, which surrounds the distillery is found nowhere what else in the world. Funbus. That and fun-bus. inspired us to distill a range of uniquely South African gins infused with these rare and enigmatic botanicals. So it's small batches, it's fragrant. Yeah, that's and it's amber. And it's full of citrus and juniper, and it says sweet toffee apples, subtle spice, and delicate floral notes intertwined with the dry woody finish mm. and it says to enjoy neat on the rocks or with tonic um and we have it with fever tree mediterranean tonic water and a slice of orange i think yes we have orange. and pink peppercorns pink pepper which i don't know where sarah got the inspiration for that i got the inspiration for that from their website well, there we go. Can I drink it then? We we can. And I was just looking up because apparently they've got... Ooh, smells interesting. They do, they do the distillation with a vapour infusion method. Oh, 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 um, oh. Oh, and therefore makes it much darker. Oh, I don't know. I'm imagining, right, I haven't even tasted yet, but I'm thinking I'm not going to be drinking a gin tonic. And I'm no. looking at it and I'm thinking it's like a ginger beer. But I'm going to have a go yeah. here. Toffee apples and ginger beer, yeah. And I oh. wanted a gin. <laughs> oh, that isn't a gin and tonic, but that is lovely. And again, drinking something from South Africa, not that we've drunken something from no, South Africa, say. but no, I was thinking about, the, you know, that cucumber one oh, yeah. that we did talking to Mandy in Zimbabwe. In Zimbabwe. Um, it was a really nice one for a warm country. I think this is a really lovely, what the South Africans would call a sundowner. I don't know. Maybe it'll warm on me, but at the minute it feels like I'm drinking a toffee it's apple a with ginger in the middle. Yeah, and I don't it's really like, I'm not 
a particularly sugary drink person, I have to really be in the mood to have anything like that. And it's just, I wanted a fucking gin is my problem. Yeah. I wanted a straight and simple alcoholic beverage. It doesn't taste alcoholic. No. At all. That's the problem. So if you don't like the taste of gin or the taste of alcohol, this would probably be great for you. But it's making me a moody cow because I wanted proper gin. That's my official statement. Okay, it's time for you to have a well-deserved gin. <laughs> okay, I do have my gin. So here's my gin. Yay! It looks amazing. Oh, oh look at you. Look at that. Oh. Cheers. 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 So what do you think about it? It's so odd because it doesn't taste like a gin. It tastes like I'm having a ginger beer or a fizzy drink of some kind. So it's an amber gin, which is unusual. Um, It's made in South Africa um, and sort of all part of the, um, you know, boutique handmade gin sort of Mm -hmm. resurgence that's going on now. and it's made. It's a botanical gin made with Cape um, Fainbos. Now, most people don't know what Fainbos are, but if you know what a protea flower is, oh yes, um, they're the big yes. pink, sort of yeah. scaly-looking things. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So those are proteas, and they're Fainbos. The Fainbos is the um, it's the smallest uh, floral kingdom, plant kingdom. It only exists in the southern part of of South Africa, in the Cape province. And it is the smallest of all the um, plant kingdoms, but also the most diverse. And so it's it's, it's very very highly protected um, because it is um, unique in the world and um and also it's quite diverse so you everyone knows the big king protea that one that you talked yeah. about but there's actually um hundreds thousands of plants and and hundreds and hundreds of flowers different types of protea flowers as well as other flowers so yeah that's the infros gin amber they have uh, two others um one i think is a plain juniper one is a clear with the fainbos and then I really liked the amber yeah. one. And so how how come we're drinking it? Where did you come across it then? Because I'd never heard of it at all. No. And you were really clear that this is what we were drinking oh, we right from the outset. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's my favorite gin. Um, basically, I lived um, 14 years in South Africa, was a professor at the University of the Western Cape. Um, and my kids grew up there, my sons. So I... You know, I go home to South Africa. I still have a house there. Uh, so yeah, one of the a, cu- a couple years ago when I was home, um, and we went to the we always you know rent a beach house. The friends there were like, "Oh, we're now we're having gin." I'm like, "Gin," and they're like, <laughs> and I'm like, "I, I love gin, um, but I've never seen a brown gin either." Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, this stuff it was sometimes hard to buy because um, it's small ham you know yeah. batches mm. yeah um the one that we you got in that i have now is um they don't export except i yes. think in the uk they make them right. specifically for there's a little probably sign on yours for uk export um, yeah i did see when i looked at buying it i saw lots of messages from people in the states saying how much they wanted it and yeah. please would <laughs> they send it over there um mm-hmm. but no, we got it. We get it. We get it. <laughs> Another amber gin that I really like is actually from Iceland Ooh. called Himbli. Um, also very nice. Noted. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to find a guest to try that one. Excellent. And with this amber gin, we are talking global child health. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> Anya and I will now talk about what we know. It won't take mm-hmm. long. Um, and you can hear where the base sort of level is of our knowledge. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I know what children are, which is a good start. Yeah. I wasn't You don't particularly one. like them, but you know what they no, are. No, I'm not overly fond of children. I don't think there's anything wrong with children. I just don't. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> They are a lot of work. They're a lot of work. And sometimes I'm like, well, what do I talk to you about? I, I don't know. Anyway. Or they're 
quite honest, sometimes children are a lot easier to talk to than adults. Yeah, sometimes. You know. But we'll skip over that. But anyway, moving on from children but as a species in t- into <laughs> child health in general. There's not... Most of the knowledge I have of child health comes from Call the Midwife. Really? And that's about it. It's very limited. (laughs) And it's it pretty much is just like spina bifida and baby. It's it's quite it's quite limited and in the past. Yes, fifties, sixties. In What what city is it set in? In Poplar in London. In London yes. in the UK. So East globally, London. yeah. Globally, no. So globally, no. I'm not very clued up. Thinking about child health and global child health, the majority of of times that we see it's in the news being negative, uh, or fundraising through things like um, comic relief, um, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, or famous people traveling to mm. show how amazing they are to go and be godlike creatures and <laughs> and help uh, those in need in other countries and and as always we always talk talk about the, the fact that we are we have to recognize our privilege um Mm-hmm. Middle, me, middle class, middle age. Um, <laughs> we're in the UK. We've got the NHS, Thank you, um, NHS. Right. and so child health in this family is pretty good. We're lucky really. that we don't know more about child health, really, because yeah. it hasn't affected us. And, we and so, right. for you and our conversation, we are ignorant, not through any malicious malicious intent, right? Just through not actually knowing too much about the state of child health around around the globe. Right. So I think it's interesting you mentioned Call the Midwife, which was, of course, um, in the middle of the last century. So we yes. say that, thinking of the 1900s as the <laughs> last century. Um, in uh, a poverty-stricken area in, yeah. in East London. And so a lot of the challenges that they face, actually, with, with poverty is, mm-hmm. you said, oh, well, it's not you know, um, that's not relevant now. It is actually relevant in mm. low and middle income countries because those families are still living in poverty, um, mm-hmm. sometimes worse, um, sometimes slightly better than what you might see have seen in, in any um, sort of slum area of a city mm-hmm. um, in the middle of the last century. Uh, and so, you know, it really is about development and poverty. And um, yeah, you do see those... Um, you know, poor, starving children donate mm. money, and the fact is, is those they are real children, and they yeah. are there are poor, starving children, um, and many, many die. Um, and and I think one of the things, as you said, you feel quite fortunate um, with the NHS and also the other social programs that exist in mm-hmm. the UK and or the US or any of our high income countries. You know that social safety net. That people say, oh, you know, sometimes people complain about having to pay for that social safety net. But if you go to a place where that social safety net does not exist, Mm -hmm. which is most lower, lower middle income countries, um, then you do have, you know, hundreds, thousands of those little malnourished children Mm. uh, who get measles, who uh, get uh, malaria, uh, pneumonia, diarrhea, Mm. just because they're living in a poorer environment poor sanitation, and they are dying. I mean, we still have um, 5.2 million children under five um, die every year. Uh, About almost half of those are in the first month of life um, in the newborns. And on top of that 5.2 million, there's another almost 2 million that die around the time of birth. So they're born, uh, they're not born alive. And, And so that has to do with you know, so that we think of both, you know, the mother and the newborn together. We think of the child needing immunizations. Um, and so, you know, we need the child needing food, the child needing um, a clean environment. And, you know, thinking of them in a community and in a family um, and sort of the wider environment that they live in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that's that's the key. So I think it is interesting to think, um, you know, something that the UK audience would probably relate to yeah. is understanding that po- that kind of poverty. Mm-hmm. And most of the people living in poverty are children yeah. in the UK and in the, and the world. Yeah, 
I was going to say, I mean, we we recognise our our privilege in the UK as well as globally. Mm. Um, And, you know, there is, and I think, you know, one of the parts to our question is how um, COVID has changed things Mm. or how it's it's sort of impacted on things. And I think one of the things it has done within the UK has highlighted uh, the child poverty in this country Mm. that has been ignored or just conveniently mm-hmm. overlooked mm-hmm. um right. and you know yes we've got the nhs and that is brilliant um and that can deal with the problems that arise from that poverty but i think you know recognizing it does exist stuff is soared Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. but i mean the thing about the nhs which is a brilliant um service i've you know been getting service there since the beginning of the year. I'm mean, quite impressed, um, certainly compared to the U.S. Um, I, I, I'm sorry to say. Um, <laughs> you know, that's a, a treatment. Mm. They treat mm. illness. They diagnose and treat. Um, so a sick child, you know, can go to the NHS and probably get a very good service. But I think the prevention mm. is, I think, uh, is not the NHS. I think that's Public Health UK or something like that. Um, and, you know, prevention is really what they do. So that's, you know, assuring water sanitation, which is pretty much good, you know, on, at a baseline level. Um, but then obviously your development um, and, uh, you know, jobs, for, mm. you know, and, um, you know, any welfare type funding that, mm. that families get. But yes, COVID, the, one of the big things that COVID did uh, worldwide um, was highlight the inequities that our society, how inequitable our societies are. So who was dying from COVID? It was poor, you know, poor, often people of color. Um, And, you know, for a lot of reasons in in high income countries, they were often frontline workers. Uh, They couldn't afford not to take public transport. They, um, you know, if their jobs were lost, that sunk them, you know, sunk them more into poverty. The increase in poverty, um, has been, you know, quite devastating. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that's something I think that we have to worry about is, mm. is how, how much that's, that's doing that. And then the fact is, is that we know COVID didn't, it, it was more, it killed more, you know, of our elderly or people who were, you know, had chronic conditions and it wasn't as bad in children. They would still get COVID, but they would sometimes not even hardly be sick but what we saw and we did see it in in um high-income countries but particularly in low and middle-income countries was these lockdowns and the sort of it's more of the collateral effect um of the covid so that we had a lot of services that were disrupted um for a lot of reasons um you know often they were closed uh because they didn't have staff uh, they were shifting all their resources to take care of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, there were obviously, you know, then staff shortages. There were supply shortages. Yeah. Planes weren't flying. So things weren't able to move around. So, I mean, I'm sure you've heard about different supply chain issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm still working retail. Mm-hmm. I worked in it the whole way through. And even now there's ongoing mm-hmm. issues off the back of that of just getting basic things in. I mean, obviously not right. after Brexit either, but we won't get well, political today. Not <laughs> right, yeah. And, you know, so you think about like medicines or vaccinations or, um, you know, or food um, that wasn't then getting, you know, into countries because the flights weren't flying or the man- manufacturers were closed down. And so the, the thing we were concerned about immediately, um, I was at UNICEF at the time, was... Um, not so much the uh, the health of tr- the threat of COVID to directly to, to child health, but the I- indirect effects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So early on in the um, in the pandemic, uh, the um, Johns Hopkins University did some modeling, which means they kind of put in and say, well, what happens if uh, services for children are reduced? Mm-hmm. How many children could die as a result of not being able to get to services? And they estimated that, you know, a 45% or almost half reduction in services just for six months would result in an additional um, 
over a million child deaths. But that was an estimate. And so you're like, oh, well, you know, is that really happening? Well, the first reports we got actually were out of Nepal, a a wonderful Mm -hmm. colleague of ours, um, London School colleague, um, Mm -hmm. Ashish. Um, And he had an upgoing, you know, um, study with having data. And what they saw is that that childbirth, that, you know, having their baby in a facility, in a, in a health facility with the trained, you know, um, like midwife, mm-hmm. um, during their lockdown, it went, it, it was halved as if, yeah. you know, that what they had modeled and they saw the neonatal, the newborn deaths go up three times. Yeah. They saw the stillbirth, those babies that are born go up one and a half times. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was quite a concern. And, uh, if you look at the data, uh, the WHO did start following this. This is work that I, I worked on them with. That um, that co- early in the pandemic, countries were estimating that about half of services were disrupted in the early part of the pandemic. In the most recent um, survey, um, ninety per- over ninety percent of countries were still reporting disruptions, um, but it was only maybe a third of services uh, were disrupted. But uh, still, a lot of that was maternal, newborn, and child services. So the fact is, is that babies don't not come just because yeah. it's COVID. Yeah, they, yeah. they still need to, they still need to be <laughs> delivered in a safe, <laughs> clean environment. They're like, we don't care. We're done. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and the same thing for children. The children are still getting, I mean, the three big killers of children are pneumonia, diarrhea, and malaria. Yeah. Um, and so children are still getting sick and they may even be getting sicker because of the po- increase in poverty yeah. then increases malnutrition, which then, um, in increases their their susceptibility to infectious diseases such as pneumonia, diarrhea, and malaria. So, you know, even now, a year and a half in, not you know, a third of services are still being disrupted. We lose 5.2 million children a year globally. Yeah. 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 Right? And so, you know, we're we are going to be able to address COVID um, mm. you know, with the vaccines and and that yeah, COVID will eventually go away. Yeah. Um, but child death won't necessarily go away unless we intervene and it's the same as we are as with well COVID. For right. older children who have now lived through a life-changing historic event and who are now going to have even just kids who were learning to talk and walk during this time and now haven't had that social interaction as well. Surely all of that goes into child health in mental and physical terms as well. Right. And that's where you're talking about development. And the two important development stages are those first uh, few years. Um, and that's when the brain is growing um, substantially. And the other important area uh, is in adolescence. And oh, that's the I remember those time. days. Oh, yeah, right. they're brutal. <laughs> but, right. They're brutal. But that's when your, the, your brain was also undergoing its major de- um, development. And this is stuff we can see on like, you know, uh, MRIs and, mm-hmm. you know, CAT scans, you know, you can look and see the, the changes in the brain. And those are the two critical periods, the first three years of life and then adolescence. And adolescence, you know, th- there is mortality in adolescence. It's from different causes. Um, unfortunately, it's like um, injuries, road traffic accidents, and yeah. what we would call self-harm, yeah, basically yeah. suicide. Um and it's slightly different between boys and girls, but that's what what adolescents generally die from. But as you said, there's also the development issues. So when we speak about the young child, we speak about early child development. And you're right. They need stimulating environments. They need to have nutrition. Um, they need to have, uh, you know, health. If they're sick, they're not going to develop. You know, they're not going to be able to develop if they're malnourished. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they they don't have the energy to mm-hmm explore and do the things that children should do to crawl and, you know, walk and all of that. And they need, um, you know, a clean environment, good parent caregiving, and then, um, you know, development and sort of early learning opportunities. Uh, And so that's something we call the early child development. And there's a whole framework called the nurturing care framework that was developed a few years ago, which we're trying to promote. And what we want to promote really is what we now call life course, mm-hmm. understanding that every stage sets you up for the next stage. Mm-hmm. And so if you stumble over one early on, um, it can multiply 
the effects can multiply. And that's what poverty does, particularly in children. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, but then same thing, you know, when you get them to adolescence. So, you know, are they already resilient? Can they, um, you know, learn, you know, what are the issues? And do they live in a violent community or a safe community? And, you know, that obviously, you can obviously see how that would directly impact how they're going to move into adulthood mm-hmm. and 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 their opportunities to be healthy, mm-hmm. you know, contributing members of society. And that's one thing that has been in the U- news in the UK has been the increase of self-harm and mental health mm-hmm. in that adolescent age group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, and I think that's the, the other thing that, you know, COVID has... Um, has highlighted besides the inequity is is the issue of mental health, mm. um, and it was there was something UNICEF WHO uh, were you know starting to try and do more work in. It still is very stigmatized, mm-hmm. obviously, um, and you know it's like it doesn't get much in the way of resources, and you know in the health system or by governments, and you know so that in the last five years maybe. 10 years, the issue of mental health has is been higher and higher on the agenda. And then um, as has equity, but COVID really sort of said, mm. whoa, here, you know, you have real problems with equity. We have real problems with mental health, um, which have been exacerbated mm. by COVID, made worse by COVID. And so, yeah, so mental health um, for particularly for adolescents um, and then also for you know, people in the community, their own parents, you know, the stress of, uh, you know, losing a job, mm-hmm. not having food, um, and how that that impacts the, the child, both physically, not having enough food, but also mentally, because of the stress in the family. Mm-hmm. South Africa's, you know, um, interestingly, um, I think, in, as far as I know, they're the only country that did this, um, uh, not including countries that already don't really have alcohol sales. Uh, legally, but South Africa during their uh, high-level lockdowns um, banned the sale of alcohol. Oh, you would have been screwed. <laughs> you and Dad. I got a text from my dad when lockdown went on, where he went, "Don't worry, the wine society is classed as essential still, so it's still open." Like that was yes. the level of need. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, they stopped all wines and they stopped all alcohol sales. And it was an interesting um, almost experiment, really. Mm. But um, they have tremendous problems with alcohol um, and violence and alcohol and road traffic accidents. And uh, and then, of course, family violence, yeah. you know, uh, and abuse related to alcohol. The reason that one of the reasons that they originally did it was they were afraid of their hospitals being overwhelmed. And so they needed to divert resources and they wanted to reduce the road traffic accidents, the community violence and the family violence mm-hmm. by reducing alcohol consumption. And it worked. Yeah. They yeah. had a massive reduction in emergency room uh, admissions mm-hmm. across the country. But this is not a good thing. This is not a good thing to just sort of encourage other countries to adopt, you know. Well, my son was there and he's like, yeah, we we went out and got, you know, we've got enough to, to, you know. We'll um, we'll get by. (laughs) Can we we zoom out and Mm -hmm. come away from... With the hand movements. With the hand movements. I'm zooming out. Okay, good. Um, (laughs) Can we zoom out and come away from COVID and look, global child health, as general can you paint a picture for me what is what are the differences globally is it as clear as it's a nice easy question Sarah yeah just paint a picture of the whole world well (laughs) is it a clear um poverty issue is there something more going on what what is the picture in terms of the differences of child health in a global sense Um, I mean, one thing we have to think about is the changing trends in in population. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously, uh, populations are becoming more urban, um, so they have different issues than being rural. The other thing is is the number of babies being born. So we have about 140 million babies born a year. That's a fuck ton of babies. It is. (laughs) Yes. And then you think living in the countryside and the NIMBYs going, don't build a house in my 
backyard <laughs> with that many babies they need places right. to go asia used to have the most number of it still does have the most number of births but africa is um is has quadrupled its birth and it's set to rise and outnumber uh the number of babies born um in asia um by about 2050 mm. Did Asia change it all after the um, the one child policy? Yeah, they've now yeah. taken away the one child Have policy. They? Oh, okay. Mm. Uh, they're still not. I mean, it, it's more really in, in South Asia that we're talking about, um, yeah. and um, you know, India, Bangladesh, yeah. um, and Southeast Asia, and you know, they are seeing successes with their you know family planning programs um, and economic development. Um, so people are having fewer babies, but Africa is not. And, you know, the thing about it is, is that in Africa, like number of midwives to deliver babies, um, on average, they, they're only on course to add another 1.4 million health workers by 2030. But with that increase in number of births, at, it, it's outnumbering. They yeah. to actually just keep it where it is, which is only sixty percent of births are in a health facility. Just to keep it where it is. They need would need to add a, another four point two million skilled workers, and that's you know. And so that's really something that we're going to face is is this demographic challenge of um, not enough workers, and that we can't produce enough workers rapidly enough to meet the, the the demand, particularly in West and Central Africa. You know, it's a bit circular in that when you have more economic development, um, which is what we saw in the early part of last century from, you know, late 1800s to the yeah. middle 1950s, was, you know, rapid economic development, which then, um, you know, reduces um, deaths. And yeah. then when children aren't dying, families can have fewer children. Yeah. Um, because they're, you know, more sure their child child, child is going to live. Yeah, because if you look back on on your mm-hmm. Irish heritage, oh, right. there and... might be quite a few babies there, but that <laughs> might also be family. because yeah, Catholics mm-hmm. love to multiply. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, and yeah. So I mean, what that's what you know we we saw, and so economic development, I think, is something um, you know that we need to work on we're starting to see the child as more holistically mm-hmm. you know we think of them as not just a make sure they get their vaccinations but they also are you know growth is monitoring me on to make sure that they live in a healthy like i said that nurturing care framework healthy environment good parenting you know um early learning and that we don't give up on them. And so this is something that WHO and UNICEF is now redoing. Um, they Something they're calling child health redesign. They want to do better, basically, mm-hmm. um, and have committed to doing better to look at a child more holistically and across their life course, mm-hmm. not just zero to five. You know, all, everything we always looked at all the babies who died zero to five. Well, what about those kids who are five to ten? What about that second decade, those adolescents? Mm-hmm. Um because we recognize that it, as you said, as I said before, each each step builds on the previous step, mm-hmm. and so if you yeah. falter, it doesn't mean you can't get back up, but it's harder. And if you do it, fall again, and you fall again, and you fall again, then that's where we're losing, um, you know, potential, you know, healthy um, mm-hmm. members of of our communities and our society. So I think looking at the life course, looking at, at a child as a holistic. Um, you know, in context of their family and then their community. And that's the other thing that I think for me is, is really critical is that um, is communities mm-hmm. as, you know, and these, and the, even if it's the urban slum, there's still a, a bit of, mm-hmm. it's less, it's less structured, but there is still a community there. Um, and uh, working with like trained commu- and employed community health workers. Mm-hmm. So, Countries like um, Ethiopia, uh, Malawi, now Rwanda, have um, started to employ these large numbers of community health workers mm. who are frontline workers, um, visit households, um, you know, look at the, they can go out and see what the sanitation looks like. You know, your nurses and your midwives, they're just mm. seeing the sick people. They don't have time. So you get these communities and then you engage the communities to, you know, help take, address 
the challenges that they're facing. So I think um, for me, that's another. I think another one it, which is exciting um, and has lots of promise if we use it wisely is digital technology. Cell phones have proliferated wildly in Africa. Yeah. Um, and the lower middle income countries like South Africa or Kenya, they have like more than more than one cell phone per capita. Yeah. Um, <laughs> other countries don't have quite that. They might have 60% or 80%, mm-hmm. but it's often only one phone. Mm-hmm. But there's usually at least one phone accessible to almost to most households, even the poorest. Yeah. Um, that's the other thing that COVID did is it pushed those uh, digital and telemedicine boundaries. And the fact is, is that technology does have the, the potential mm. to help countries, poor countries, leapfrog, mm. you know, um, all the development that we had to go through in, you know, the years and years of development in, you know, in terms of economic development and communications and all of that, you know, uh, to leapfrog that. Okay, so one thing that's been bubbling in my brain throughout this conversation has been the UK cutting. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to stay real quiet because this is when I start to talk shit about people. Yeah, so how much is, is that going to impact child health globally in terms of that money no longer go, going to the places it needs to go to? Yeah, hugely. I mean, you know, it, it impacts so many projects. And I think part of it is that they had given, you know, they'd already promised money or contracted yeah. with people for money and they canceled all that. So, you know, they had 60 million they were going to give to UNICEF for, yeah, I think it was 60 million that they said, oh, we're not going to give it to you anymore. You know, So all the plans that have been put in place to use that money, all the things that have been set up, it's then gone. Yeah. Gone. Right. And, and then also to all of the, you know, the not-for-profits or for something mm. like London School, which does a lot of research and programming, but then also, yeah, to, to governments themselves. And, you know, there, you know, in many, many countries in Africa, you know, that overseas development aid is still a big piece of their mm. budget. Mm. Um, you know, as countries develop, they transition away from that dependency mm. slowly, but it needs to happen slowly so that they can, you know, make plans and, you know, how, you know, put it in their budgets mm. and say, this is, you know, a little bit more this year, a little bit more that year. So that you have like something like the Global Vaccine Alliance, Gabi, it's also called. And as countries speak, and they provide the um, the vaccines. Mm. Uh, but as a country becomes, you know, more economically independent, then they transition mm. for them to be purchasing all the vaccines and running all the programs. Mm. Um, so, but I think their transition runs like 15 years, mm. you know, mm. five, 10, 15 years to help countries, you know, because if you think about the budget, you know, you do your budget, the country does yeah. a budget, just like oh, the yeah. UK does a budget or the US does a budget. Well, you know, then they can slowly increase their percentage yeah. And decrease the percentage that's coming from the the development assistance, mm-hmm. and you know be ready to take on all of that. So mm. it's there's a lot of capacity building and negotiating that needs to go into that. So all of a sudden, boom, it's just gone, you know. And that was a huge piece of your budget. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. And then you're not going to have the programs. This and this, you know, whether it's the education programs or the health programs or the mm. um, you know, the, particularly the commodities, antibiotics, you know. And so, you know, in the middle of COVID, to sort of, which was already causing problems, to then do this. And, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, the economy and the tax base for the UK has uh, dropped, mm-hmm. as it did in the US, as it did in all the whole world. Mm-hmm. Um, but in previous economic downturns, the UK didn't make these kinds of cuts you know, 2008, mm. I mean, they would have, they would have reduced it, but I mean, there were programs that were all completely just gone, mm-hmm. um, cut. And that, I think that was scary. I think it impacts the UK, um, reputation. 
as a global leader. Oh, well, we're leader. doing brilliantly with that reputation. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> mm, I really, really support all the political decisions yeah. that have been made yeah, in the last, like, five years. Yeah. Blech. I know. <laughs> and so that has been a shock on top of already a shock that these countries were already facing mm-hmm. because of COVID. It's great that you actually knew about it. I mean, that's okay, like that is amazing um, that people were hearing about the fact that this was happening. Um, and because it's often something, and they did, like the UNICEF cut, they kind of tried to slide under yeah. the yeah. radar. Yeah. Right? yeah. They, they announced it on sliding this, things under yeah. the radar. Right. Yeah. They announced it on the Saturday night of a, of a three day weekend, <laughs> bank holiday weekend. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, so it's exciting that you've heard about it because I think, um, you know, advocacy from people to their MPs and, you know, obviously the economy is probably going to pick back up mm. in the next year or so. And so, you know, if this is just a one year blip in the UK budget, it won't be as devastating as if it mm. continues. I can see by Anya's face quite how hopeful she is in anything being <laughs> I am, with this government. I am aware that there are certain people in charge at the moment who I would use some colourful language to describe. <laughs> okay, okay, let's let's move move okay. away. Move away from um one thing I wanted to go on was vaccines and mm-hmm global vaccine and how that's all going and again we're (laughs) on what the UK is not doing Mm -hmm. and again Um, children not being vaccinated well yes Mm. so maybe we Mm -hmm. go there right let's talk about vaccines then okay so as we know um the vaccines are not yet approved um for children under 12 yes um so even here in the U.S. Um, and actually now here in the U.S., it's mostly young people who are not vaccinated. But we've also had the um, issue with pregnant women uh, not being vaccinated, and the whole confusion in this country about whether they should or shouldn't and it's safe and it's not. Because there's been really confusing messages about yeah. whether to have the vaccine and the safety with your child. So it's no wonder that pregnant mm. women don't know right. whether to have it or not. Right. And that's the thing is that they don't, when you start to study something, you don't study it in pregnant women and children yeah, yeah. and people who are at higher risk. You study, you know, in, and so this, the first studies, which were done very, very rapidly, obviously, mm-hmm. um, were not done in pregnant women. But the, and now the CDC, only because you can't even tell you how many of like friends, mostly for their children who are now having children, I'm that old, um, <laughs> is, um, it, you know, should she get the vaccine? And um, so I was keeping up on it um, and actually have the co- have colleagues in the CDC. Mm-hmm. And the CDC has recommended it now. But even yeah. before that, um, there was quite a bit of indication that, that you should have the vaccine um, for two reasons. One, um, women in the third trimester, pregnant in the third trimester that get COVID uh, seem to have higher risk of serious consequences. Mm, yeah. So they were at higher, because recognizing that when you're pregnant and and particularly that later part, your immune system is quite depressed. Mm. Um, You don't know that about pregnancy, but because it doesn't want you to, the mother to reject the the foreign baby, the mother's immune system is quite suppressed. Um, So uh, they're more, they were more at risk for serious COVID Mm. um, and more and more at risk for death. So that Mm. was one, they should get the vaccine. Two, um, if they had the vaccine and they'd had it at least, um, you know, a, a, a few weeks before delivery, those antibodies that they had now created from the vaccine passed to the baby. And that's important, mm. you know, and so, and they didn't want, and there was all this stuff about separating moms and babies and not breastfeeding. And, you know, all of that was, was rubbish, but the breastfeeding part we had down very quickly, it was perfectly safe. Mm. Um, and mothers shouldn't be separated from babies. God, breastfeeding is always such an issue, isn't it? <laughs> just for everything, socially, medically, yeah. it just always comes up mm-hmm. as a big, big issue. It's anyway, because right. boobs are there to be sexual, not oh. to do the thing they're meant to do. 
I know. It's, and that's, you know, we're trying to push breastfeeding in, you know, low and middle income countries um, is, uh, you know, because, you know, the formula companies, but that's a whole, you know, yeah. push formula. That's a whole nother thing. But with regard to the vaccine and pregnancy, women should get vaccinated, probably not in their first trimester, but in their second and third trimester mm-hmm. um, to protect themselves and to confer protection to the baby, recognizing that those antibodies last anywhere from in the baby that were shared from the mother um, from a, a few months to almost a year. So like the, if, if the mother's immune to measles, whether it was vaccine or she had measles, that um, immunity lasts about nine months mm. in the baby up to a year. And so that's why you may not remember, but you get, you don't get the measles vaccine early. You get your measles vaccine when you're like nine months to yeah, a year yeah. old. Yeah, yeah. And that's because if you give the vaccine early, um, those antibodies that are already there are going to eat the vaccine, basically. Yeah, and it won't it won't conf- it won't allow the baby to start to make their own yeah. Yeah. Um, antibodies to measles. Yeah. So that passing of antibodies is is also mm. a really really good thing for um, for a reason for mothers to get that. The issues of um, you know obviously I think children down to twelve should obviously be getting vaccinated, um, yeah. and hopefully they'll continue to do the studies and understand what and how much to give to children under 12 mm. or even to to newborns. But in the meantime, they should still be getting all their other vaccinations, mm. you know, and that's yeah. a, that was our big concern because basically early on, quite a few countries um, stopped vaccination programs. Um, oh, wow. And because they were afraid that, you know, you're going out, your people are coming to clinics, there's all these people, they're sure. all queuing up, and that yeah. they were at risk of transmitting COVID. Yeah. And so this was something actually, London School has um, these very, uh, really amazing, also modelers. And basically, they looked at how much COVID would spread um, in if you had like a mass, if you had your immunization program, where masses of people were queuing up. Mm. And um, how much COVID would spread and how many people would die from COVID. And that's including the fact that they're going to take it back to the elderly mm. or whatever, versus how many kids would die of measles or diphtheria or tetanus or, you know, things that they were getting the vaccines for. Um, and I think something like um, four times as many kids would um, yeah. die um, than older people would die from COVID. Mm-hmm. So fortunately, um by sort of August, September last year, countries reinstated their immunization programs, mm-hmm. but at that point mm-hmm. they were also going to have catch up. But because of the overall effect on essential health services, um, immunization programs like others are still, uh, you know, a, a quarter to a third are still disrupted in some way. Can I go back and pick up on your comment about breastfeeding and mm-hmm. uh, companies peddling formula instead of (laughs) Mm -hmm. breast milk and that issue um and linking that also with just general nutrition and Mm -hmm. child health globally can we talk about that a bit yeah right I mean malnutrition is uh, as we discussed is a huge issue it underlies quite a bit of uh child disease and child mortality it's often a combination of a malnutrition and then some infectious disease a child really doesn't need anything else in the first six months Mm, they mm. just breast milk and obviously the benefits of the uh, bonding and attachment which have long-term benefits for development Mm. um, and caregiving as well as the protection from all those antibodies that we were Mm. just discussing and this is the thing obviously formula is brilliant for women who for whatever reason can't breastfeed or for mums who have just not it's not worth to have them for whatever reason formula is great for that but if you've got something there and you can do it and we know it's good use it <laughs> right and then and you know so i mean they do have the um marketing breast, uh, substitution guide guidelines and mm-hmm. countries sign up to that where they try to reduce the the marketing mm-hmm. of uh, of uh, formula or um, breast milk substitutes. And the thing is, is that, you know, they made it look like, you know, you're wealthier yeah. or you're more status mm-hmm. and whatever. And then, you know, they, they can't, they can't keep it up or, and there are issues obviously with mothers going back to work, but you know, you can, there are structural supports that you can do to um, help moms breastfeed. 
And I, I wonder if that's, you know, going back to those sort of high income countries that have spent many, many years <laughs> developing into high income countries. They've been through all of that process of change mm-hmm. off the backs mm-hmm. of low to middle income countries, you know, throughout history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And here we're wanting low to middle income countries to change rapidly, but they're still going through everything that we've been through. You know, the UK has gone through the whole formula. We're still going through it, but it was it was very much going back to call midwife. I don't know what episodes it's come up in, but actually, nurse Jenny Lee has always said best is breast, and so has Sister Monica Joan. I mean, if you watched a couple of episodes with me, Sarah, you would know that. But that campaign has been going for all of those years, yeah. Yeah. I think, because mm-hmm. you know there is that development lag uh, mm-hmm. in terms of the differences in the countries, and that advertising is still going on within the low to middle income countries. That is very mm-hmm. much that if you want right. to be you know, more Wonder Woman mum who can do it all yeah. and is and show your money there for you, your or show your yeah. progress, then you buy the formula. Right. And you know, a lot of times families can't afford it. Mm-hmm. Um and uh so what they'll do is they'll buy it and then and the two major issues are generally the water's not clean. Mm-hmm. So you're introducing contaminated water, which can um, cause diarrhea. Um and they can't afford it. And so they'll, instead of mixing it, like it's supposed to be three scoops or two scoops or whatever it is, because yeah. um, they're not buy, they're buying the powdered stuff, not the yeah. pre-done. Um, and so they'll mix it, they'll put in one scoop right. and then the child's getting like a third of the nutrients that they're yeah, supposed so they're to get. Yeah, so they're not getting enough. And so yeah. they're not getting enough nutrients and then they're getting contaminated water. And this, the whole breastfeeding thing was very interesting and... Um, in the 2000s, early mm. 2000s, um, and ni- late 90s, because of HIV, because HIV can transmit yes. through breast milk. But I, I did tons of research on this. And um, the fact is, is if they could exclusively breastfeed the first six months and not give other things, it reduced the transmission. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, mothers should be on full therapy. Mm-hmm. And if they're on full therapy and they're, what they call their viral load is very low, there's no reason uh, mm. not to, um, to exclusively breastfeed. Mm. And then when they're six months old, you start to give them, you know, complimentary feeding. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and it, you know, you probably, and if you're not HIV positive, there's never any reason. And, mm-hmm. and like I said, even with women, um, we just had a paper come out in January from Kenya where we worked with a, a tea plantation mm. at, to help them to support their moms who had to be out in the fields yeah. to continue to breastfeed um, while they were working in the fields. Mm-hmm. Um, so they would get a, a maternity leave and then they wanted to go back out. And, you know, so they did a lot of things to support these moms, mm-hmm. um, either by, you know, providing pumps or, you know, the creches, you know, moving the creches closer to the field so the mom could go and breastfeed. And, you know, we saw a doubling um, Mm. of the, of the breastfeeding, you know, and a lengthy breastfeeding. And, you know, in South Africa, when they stopped giving free formula for the HIV moms and said, no, breast is better, that message transmitted across the whole country. Mm. And we saw also a huge increase in um, breastfeeding um, across the country because take away, taking away something like that was such a big message. Mm. And it's like, even for HIV mob, positive moms, they should be breastfeeding. It was like, well, if they should be breastfeeding, I should, should be breastfeeding, <laughs> yeah. you know? And, um, and so, um, you know, there are things you can do. Um, you know, people are quite resilient and, you know, they do want what's best for their, their child mm. or mm. their family. Mm. Um, and so, you know, you just need the structures to support them and to keep giving them those messages yeah. about breastfeeding, around healthy healthy food, around, um, you know, play. The fact is you don't have to buy toys for the kids to play with. You can make <laughs> no, toys they always like the, the cardboard box that the toy comes in. Oh, yeah. You know, sort the right. toy, just go for the cardboard box. Right. Can we, or, yeah, or a spoon. Um, can we, okay, can we go to success stories then? Because as we said at the beginning, the main place that we get news 
for on child health globally is the news mm-hmm. and therefore you know all the negative stories that are going on the issues that are going on say what are the initiatives that are going on that are have been positive that are hopeful the things that are that come out in your mind as being interesting to look at <laughs> Right. So we have something now called the Sustainable Development Goals, uh, which come from the UN, um, and they're quite complex. There's like 17 of them. One of them is child health. But the thing before, what we had in the previous 15 years was something called the Millennium Development Goals, mm-hmm. and um, which were also, they set targets for how much they wanted to reduce child mortality mm-hmm. and maternal mortality and HIV and whatever. Comes to mind three countries, very poor countries, lots of complex problems that actually achieved the Millennium Development Goal for reducing child mortality. There were some. Malawi, Mm -hmm. Bangladesh, I mean, and Rwanda. Mm -hmm. And so you think of those countries as, well, Bangladesh in particular, but I mean, Malawi is one of the most impoverished countries Mm. in in Africa. And um, Rwanda, of course, was coming out of the genocide. Mm. And, Mm. you know, but... You know, they by looking, you know, comprehensively and working with um, in a more coordinated way Mm. um, with the donors, with the programs, you know, whether it was the DFID, which is, you know, the um, or the um, Bill Melinda Gates Foundation or Mm -hmm. the um, the various NGOs that we have, UNICEF, WHO, um, by working in a more coordinated fashion. Um, by doing a lot of stuff at the community level, um, mm. whether it was community health workers um, or um, also in Bangladesh, um, community health workers. And they were three success stories. And it's, they, so you can, I mean, they still have a long way to go. They, were, mm. they started out at quite high, mm. but they did reduce it. They are continuing to be fairly, um, Rwanda is really amazing, actually. Um, Malawi, um, is always going to struggle because um, economically, um, mm. because they don't have natural resources. Mm. Right. Yeah. So that's a, that's a country that's always going to struggle mm. because you have to be able to sell something to be able to buy something mm. to sort of participate in the global economy. Um, but Bangladesh has lots, and um, they have uh, also had a lot of incentive um, economic development to. Um, particularly things like the garment industry. So mm-hmm. making of, you know, a lot of your clothes coming out of Marks and Spencer mm-hmm. or uh, Puma or all of them, a lot of them are being made in Bangladesh. Yeah. Um, and they've improved massively in terms of child uh, labor in garment mm-hmm. making. Right. As well as reductions in family size. They've had that one was successful family planning programs, um, reductions in family size. And yeah, so I I mentioned the the breastfeeding work that we did on a tea plantation. Um, The other place we did it was in a a large garment factory in uh, Bangladesh, Mm. where they were also, you know, doing programs. And it's interesting because... um, they, it, it, I, I didn't know that world before very much the business world of global, you know, sort of trade and they called them the brands, you know, and the, and the thing is, is that, um, you know, people who live in the UK, people who live in the US, the fact is, is that if Marks and Spencer all, all of a sudden had this like, you know, oh, using child labor or mm. unclean conditions, it looks bad for the brand mm. and the brands don't want to look bad in you know the press Mm. so they contract with the better Mm -hmm. or garment makers who are assuring healthy working conditions Mm -hmm. and um are and even baby friendly and um you know those sorts of things and so that's where um you know i think paying attention to those stories and and making brands accountable to not use child labor to make sure they have good working conditions. Um, You know, there was a similar issue in South Africa at the, in the wine farms. Um, uh, Historically they had paid the workers in wine. (laughs) 
I'm going for that job. <laughs> but it doesn't go very and far. No. It doesn't feed it doesn't your go, family. I it doesn't. Know. Well, it and, does and it causes terrible, terrible family. alcoholism. Yeah. Right. Alcoholism, yeah. uh, fetal alcohol syndrome, you know, yeah. that. So they were supposed to stop doing it um, and pay them living wage. And so then there became a, um, a certification process that globally, the, the wine farm um, and, the, and, the, and the winemaker couldn't, um, they wanted to be known as not abusing their workers, mm. basically, because they mm. were, um, and so they had a certification process. And so, um, you know, and that was the kind of thing that turned around telling them, don't do it. Yeah. Nobody, nobody does that. Yeah. You know, you got to give them an economic incentive. Mm. And so I think there are these stories, these are success stories that where if we all think, yes, we are part of a global economy. And I think that's where the, you know, sort of us first kind of that's been going on in certain countries. Mm. Um, mm. <laughs> mine in particular, mm. but um, <laughs> as well. Um, and that's, that's unrealistic. Um, obviously, we know it is. Um, it's looking back, not forward, and how we can do better. So mm. I think um, there are success stories, like I said, even for child health um, mm. And, you know, um, Rwanda continues to be a beacon. Um, mm -hmm. Bangladesh still has massive problems because of the population that they have, the environment that they live in with the massive, regular massive flooding, mm -hmm. slums, massive slums. But, you know, they are making progress mm -hmm. and other countries can too. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, lots of countries are coming out of, you know, moving up to middle income mm -hmm. or high middle income. And you know, not needing as much development assistance, mm. but there's some countries that just aren't moving at all. Yeah. And I think I, one of the things that you've touched on that makes me feel quite hopeful, hopeful as well is other things that we can do, not just in terms of, of giving monetary aid mm -hmm. um, to all the various fundraisers that, that go on, um, but using our voice in terms of, things like influencing brands to do the right thing um, right. and that, that can then have that knock-on effect. Right. And influencing your MPs to restore the, you know, overseas development assistance when, yeah. you know, next Everyone year's Everyone go write your letters, write your emails, knock on doors. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, everyone can pay a part even if you don't have the resources or to give money to various mm. charities. Mm. Um so I, I do think that's a, a really good sort of, you know, global message for people and your listeners um, mm. to think about. Mm. So. Mm. Another campaign to get on. Excellent. <laughs> well, thank you very on. much for joining us today. I'm hopeful and mind boggled in equal amounts, I think. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. We have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do. We still have 5 million children dying every year. Um, and you know, lots of children who live in poverty, but, um, I, you know, we do know a lot of what needs to be done and it's just getting support to get that done, I think is, is, is what we need. So thank you for inviting me. I, thank I you. And thank you for in, introducing us to Amber Jane. I'm still confused. Anya's, Anya's has not gone down it's very much It's gone down a bit, but I'm confused because every time I go Mine's to sip it, I think I'm, I'm having gin. Yeah. And then I'm not having gin. But I think that's the thing. I have, I long ago decided this wasn't gin. Yeah. And it's an alcoholic pop. This is the I want lovely. to put this in a tool glass with a ton of ice and a straw. It'd be I dangerous. didn't usually drink mine with a straw. Yes, but, that, but I knew I couldn't do that because they would have been gone, and I would have gotten silly by the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to. It is really dangerous. Yes. It is. It's lovely, <laughs> lovely. <laughs> Global child health. Mm. What do we know that we didn't know before? That 5 million children die a year. Not to be depressing, because we did want to end on a hopeful note, yep. but... Yep. Every year. Every fucking year. And that that is essentially down to inequalities yep. and poverty and all the complexities that are around in that whole aspect of poverty. So from living in slums 
and dirty water uh-huh. and advertising companies telling people that they should have and just formula instead mm. of breast milk mm. um and governments access. and what the governments of those countries will do and what other governments will do the access to that care education mm. uh family environment everything needs money and it needs people and it's similar to what it came back with when we were talking with sue about women in stem it comes down to money it does and our country has stopped giving the fucking money so we learned that there's still a lot of poverty yeah there's still issues around child development and we learned that there's those two aspects that they're looking at the immediate not five and the adolescence, which is fair enough. Because you know what, I had a shit time being an adolescent. Fair enough. Okay, so what have we got on hopeful? It's We've got three on. countries that have hit targets. Yes, really well, and I can't remember what they are. Bangladesh, Mogwali, Rwanda. Woohoo! Fuck yeah! Oh yeah, she wins the quiz, and that we really are ought to be looking at. All three of them for what they're doing because they've been doing amazing stuff. Mm-hmm. Ah. And that we ought to be getting on to our brands and just holding them to and account. And our MPs. And MPs and helping, not just in giving money, uh, but we ought to give money because our government isn't. Okay, time to stop now before Sarah gets political. I think we're done. Thank you. Bye-bye. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed that little episode. You got to the end, so hopefully you did. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah. Well done. If you'd like more content from us, then you can follow us on Instagram. You can. And you'll also find our chief gin taster, the gin monkey, with tasting notes of all the gins that we're tasting in the series. Go on to Instagram, so it's worth following. Yeah, yeah. Topic gin. Topic gin. Same on Twitter. Same on Twitter. Send us a little tweet. Yeah, we're on Facebook too. Topic gin, keeping it all nice and simple. And you can email us. You can if you want at hello at ginandtopic.com. If you click subscribe as well, that would be really handy. Reviews, tell people. for you to do. And we'll be back next week with another episode. I know. And another guest. And another gin. Yay. And don't forget to join me and Emma in our new tasting room on Sunday and she can tell us all about the gin.